You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric Soap here. Excited to have Shane Phillips, a 2017 NLC LA fellow here. He's been on before, but this time he's here to talk about his recently published book, The Affordable City. It's always fun to talk to NLC alums who are now published authors. We'll catch up with him, hear how that experience has gone, and what suggestions and advice he has for how to make our cities more accessible and affordable to folks who want to live in them. Let's get to it. All right, Shane, publishing a book is a pretty public experience. Have you heard from anyone you haven't heard from in a while once the book went out? What's the response been like? Um, well, it's it's still very early. So uh, the book actually doesn't officially release mm. until September 15th. But as you know, uh, it is available from the publisher directly, which is Island Press. And so, you know, I've, I've definitely gotten quite a few people I know who have said, hey, I got the book. Um, I'm, I'm starting on it now. Uh, and a few who I don't know, uh, seeing on Twitter and other places who, you know, post a picture that they receive the book. So that's been kind of cool to see people I don't, you know, have a, a relationship with. Um, and a few folks, I had a, a guy up in Seattle who runs the Sightline Institute up there, which does a lot of housing policy work. And he actually went through a lot of the book already and told me, you know, even where he didn't really agree, uh, which, you know, is inevitable with a book of this scope that he, he thought it, it, you know, hit the right notes and, uh, you know, made a good case for uh, for the positions I take in the book. Yeah. And then before we get into some of the details on the book, I'm curious too, when you're able to get something like this out into the world, are you are you plotting a press tour? How do you kind of think about promotion for something like this? Well, so like I said, the publisher is Island Press and they're a nonprofit publisher that's focused on you know, sustainability issues and urban issues. And so they have a whole team, you know, they help me with the early drafting and copy editing, and then they do the typesetting, the whole thing, and they have a marketing team. So we've been working together to you know, get on podcasts, do some webinars and things with local organizations across the country, uh, really just getting started on a lot of that. But um, yeah, having, having them as partners has been a big help. If I had to do this myself, I would probably be talking to you and, and not many other people because I'm too too lazy to do it myself. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, we're glad you're on, definitely. I think one of the fun things about the book, and, and uh, you know, I've started to go through it a little bit, is the format, which is pretty straightforward general recommendations about how folks maybe should consider and think about housing policy to make housing more affordable and different types of housing affordable in their city. Is that something that you knew you wanted to, to do approach-wise from the beginning, or is that something you stumbled into? How did you kind of land on that decision? Yeah, I think, you know, I've read plenty of housing policy and housing politics books and even finance stuff, those kinds of things. And they all tend to focus primarily on identifying problems, um, which is important, of course. But, you know, you, you read through a book and, you know, you're 200 pages in and then the last 10 pages are like, and here's what we should do about it. <laughs> and so... You know, I wanted to do something that was more focused on solutions and really could be used as sort of, you know, it, it is an argument um, about the kinds of things we need, kind of big picture, but it is very much, you know, probably two thirds of the content is recommendations on exactly what, you know, individuals and cities should be looking at in terms of specific policies. Um, so I, I really wanted to emphasize that. And, you know, I think the best recommendation, something I, I come back to when talking about it with other folks is, you know, I wrote the book and I still find myself referring to it very frequently just for, you know, uh, 
a way of structuring an argument about something when I'm trying to explain something to someone or a specific policy, because you know there's 50 plus policies in here. And so to keep them all in your head at once is a challenge. So it's, it's really a, a handbook for me and hopefully for other people as well. Yeah, and I think the first recommendation stood out to me immediately because you know, as someone on a neighborhood council here, uh, you know, housing and, and decisions about what should be developed, what shouldn't be developed, how it should be developed is a constant struggle, a constant fight, as you know. Uh, but your first recommendation is to pursue what you call the three S's. Can you share with folks what that is? Yeah. So just for a little bit of background, uh, what motivated this book more than anything else, I think, in addition to just wanting to put solutions out there, was a frustration in housing politics, housing debates, and how they seem to be really defined by their polls. So you're either a pro-housing person or you're a pro-tenant person. And if you're pro-housing, then you're anti-tenant. And if you're pro-tenant, then you're anti-housing, anti-development. And you know, I think that's wrong. I, I think it's counterproductive. And it doesn't actually describe the views of a lot of housing professionals and advocates and others. And so the book is really an argument that we need three things to make our cities affordable and just. And you can't just toss one or another to the side. And those three things, as you said, are the three S's, as, and that's how I describe them. Other people have different names for them. But those, those are supply, um, which is really just, you know, you have to have a growing supply uh, if you have a growing population and abundance breeds affordability writ large, kind of regionally. You also have to have stability um, because among other reasons, if you're building enough, even if you're building enough housing overall, you may not be able to build it quickly enough or in exactly the right places to keep up with demand. Um, you need something to protect renters in particular from the whims of the market um, so that they're not, you know, caught in the middle where they live in a neighborhood that happens to grow more popular and therefore prices might be increasing. Um, that's no fault of theirs and they shouldn't be forced out when and if that happens. And the last one is subsidy. And so this is, you know, incentives, this is actual funding, this is the way we structure our taxes, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the reason for that is supply helps a lot of people, um, stability helps a lot of people, sometimes different people in different ways. Subsidy is for the people that neither supply nor stability necessarily help directly. So, you know, if, if you are homeless, um, you just don't have enough income to afford a home. Uh, supply doesn't help you directly all that much. And stability doesn't really help you because stability is really for people who already have a home and some kind of consistent uh, income usually. And so having the funding to kind of fill the gaps is really an important uh, component as well. And then do you feel like LA is doing any of those three well right now? No. <laughs> okay. uh, supply... You know, through the transit-oriented communities program, uh, the TOC program that passed several years ago, that's basically a density bonus uh, near transit that allows you to build more homes near transit in exchange for providing affordable units on site. It's been very successful, and it's certainly increased our production a little bit. But if you look at our numbers historically, um, you know, this last decade was maybe the second lowest production in the past 70 years. And the decade before that was actually the worst. Uh, so, you know, we're still not doing well there. Stability, you know, we have rent stabilization, um, but it's it can't be applied to anything newer than 1978. And as I wrote about at my day job at UCLA, um, the rules are set such that rents can actually increase faster than inflation 
every year and they have most years for the past decade or longer. And so even if you're stabilized, um, you know, you still might be falling behind. And there's many other things we, we need to do on the stability side. Um, and then on subsidy, you know, we've done some things, the uh, measure HHH, which uh, raised or, or bonded $1.2 billion for supportive housing for unhoused residents was a big win. Uh, and, and we also supplemented that with measure H, which is countywide and $350 million a year from sales tax. So those are great. Um, but beyond that, you know, at the state level, there's some things federal is limited. There's a lot more we could do. Um, and, and, and again, going back to something I've been working on at UCLA recently, uh, I, I propose in the book and also in much more detail <clears throat> in this UCLA report, a real estate transfer tax, um, that could raise up to about a billion dollars a year just for the city of LA alone. Um, and, and collecting that money only from people who are selling homes that have often appreciated in value by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. When we go back with Shane, we'll talk some more about strategies in his book, The Affordable City. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. Shane, one of the other strategies that caught my eye was the chapter, Don't Coddle Landlords. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with so much talk now about eviction moratoriums and and what happens when that ends and can it get extended? There's definitely a lot of interest in that topic throughout the city. What uh, is your advice for folks to think about as they consider balancing their rights of tenants and the rights of landlords? Yeah. So what I, I think we're seeing from this crisis in particular is that we have to have federal leadership. This is something that cities and even states can't really handle alone. There's plenty that they can do, but they can't do everything. I mean, I think big picture, the solution to the you know coming eviction crisis and the current rent crisis and foreclosure crisis for that matter is we have to have some kind of federal guarantee that says you know we're either going to cover the cost of these things if you are put out of work um, because of an illness or or lot or lost your job because of it um, or we're going to just put a freeze on everything. The problem is if you just say that you know tenants don't have to pay rent then you know landlords property owners whomever they do have bills to pay and if you don't also do something to protect them they're going to lose a lot and you know my point in the book about not coddling landlords is we do have to recognize that owning property to rent it out is an investment decision and that comes with risk and i think often in this country we treat property as something that should only have upside potential and it can never fall in value. And if it does, the government has to step in and protect against that at all costs. Um, and we don't extend nearly those same that same level of protection to tenants. And so that's kind of where I, I come from on this. Um, but you know, all else equal, I think we need to prioritize tenants over, over landlords clearly, because if, if you just look at you know, demographics, economics, um, landlords are in a much better position. They are by definition, people who have multiple homes versus renters are people who have, you know, none effectively that they own and maybe precarious in, in the one that they're renting. So that's, that's kind of my angle on this. I think, you know, maybe that chapter in particular, I might talk a little bit about mom and pop landlords in particular and how, you know, frustration of mine is that we often exempt them from certain 
regulations um, like rent stabilization, uh, like protections against evicting tenants for no reason. And, you know, I, I don't think that the protections that you enjoy as a tenant should depend on just the, the random chance of who happens to own your property, whether it's a large scale property manager or, you know, someone who's just got like a second home that they're earning some extra income on. And then last thing, I feel like in the last week or two, discussions about housing, upzoning, and suburbs has taken on a whole new level of interest with with Trump really going hardcore on the white supremacist ideal of suburbia and the American dream only being for a certain group of people and that needs to be protected from, from other people. And what's been interesting to watch is it's put a lot of folks who I think would consider themselves progressives or at least liberals in California and places like LA on the West side, even uh, who might have black lives matter signs in their front yard or are saying the right things on social media. Um, but I think agree with the president in many ways about restricting uh, through zoning uh, where they live and making sure no one else can, can come here. I was curious in your thoughts on how you've seen any changes in the last two, three weeks as, as Trump has hit that drum with more, more fervor, if you feel like it's actually not changed much at all. I'm not sure I've seen a lot of change. If anything, maybe it's just some silence on, on the part of uh, people who are sometimes a little more outspoken about protecting single family neighborhoods. I think it's, it's just become much harder to pretend as though they don't exist in large part to exclude certain groups of people by race, ethnicity, and income um, from, from living near them and having access to the same amenities and opportunities. And, you know, a point I make in the book is that none of this is to say, you know, single family, single family zoning, is objectively problematic. It's bad. It has a explicitly racist history, but that doesn't mean that owning a single family home makes you racist um, and, and makes you a bad person per se. What does make you racist um, or at least, you know, be someone who is upholding a, a racist system is to do work to preserve that system. Um, and so, you know, what I really try to do is focus on the institution itself. And if you are defending that racist or classist or exclusionary system, then I'm going to call you out for it. But if you are, you know, just an average person who's not aware of it, you know, I might try to educate you about that history and how, you know, by participating in it and not saying anything and trying to change it, you are doing harm in a meaningful way. Um, but then it's up to that person to decide whether, you know, neighborhood character, quote unquote, or, you know, minimal traffic and those kinds of things are more important to them than justice and racial equity and, and, and these kinds of things. So that's kind of, that's my approach to the, to this issue. I don't, I try not to call out individual people until they take the actions that that uphold those systems of exclusion. And then in, what's the approach people should take to making sure they have a copy of your book? How should they find it? Right now, the best place to go is islandpress.org. Uh, the book is called The Affordable City Strategies for Putting Housing Within Reach and Keeping It There. And uh, they can actually use a promo code on there. Phillips, my last name, for 20% off 
as I said, it's not officially out until September 15th, but if you order it from Island Press, people are already receiving it. And um, on September 15th, it'll be available, you know, all the bookstores, Amazon, everywhere else, and you can get it for Kindle and, and, and uh, you know, whatever format you like. Love it. Well, listen, thanks for coming on. Congrats on the success so far. Excited to see where things go once the book is out officially. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. Make sure to catch all past episodes at all the places you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, they're all there. And until next time, We'll catch you soon.